What's up, heroes? Welcome to Producer Life Podcast, Episode 70. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Mike Zimmerlich, the president of 8020 Records in Phoenix, Arizona. Mike has over 15 years of experience with artist branding and development and has personally represented over 26 artists spanning genres like alternative, pop punk, rock, indie folk, singer-songwriter, nerdcore hip-hop, progressive rock, and electronic. These artists have opened for acts such as Beck, The Animal Collective, and MRMS, as well as performed on official NAM showcases, CMJ, Summerfest, I Voted Festival, and Vans Warped Tour. During this interview, Mike talks about the key ingredients artists need when working with label, what labels look for in an artist, tips for live streaming, NFTs, and a whole lot more. But first, cue the intro music. All right, Mike, welcome to the Producer Life Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. I'm glad you're here and and happy April Fool's Day. I know, right? (laughs) I feel like I should have some uh, honking noises or something going on in the background, but uh, we'll we'll keep it at least semi-professional here. So, You know, it's funny funny that you mentioned that because I actually did an April Fool's Day show uh, many, many years ago. And one of the things we were worried about is that people, would they actually think that this is an actual show or they think it's just a joke? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's probably okay to record it on April Fool's Day. I don't know that I would want to release it on April Fool's Day. It's you know? true. It's very true. <laughs> so uh, I'm excited to have a successful indie label owner here. This is uh, going to be great. And I've got a ton of questions about labels and how they function and what artists should should look for. And um, I, I guess I want to start though, but how did you get your love of music? How did you first decide that you wanted to become a, a label owner? That's a long story. Uh, it goes back to when I was about three, four years old. No joke. I, uh, my parents were both, um, they met actually in middle school and in the band program. So my father played trumpet and my mother played clarinet and that's how they met. And so when mm-hmm. I was th- about three, four years old, uh, they put me in front of the piano and uh, got me a, a private piano tutor and started taking piano lessons. I like to joke that I started reading English at the same token I was reading music. So music's wow. always been a big part of my life. In fact, uh, my aunt and uncle were music teachers, band teachers for a very, very long time. So music has always been a big part of my family, especially in music education. So that's why I originally thought I was going to be was a music educator and following my aunt and uncle. And then high school, a senior year of high school, I had a project where I had to come up with a, like a product and then sell it to my fellow students in between classes. And it didn't do well at all. It actually did horribly, but I just loved the whole experience. And my parents are also entrepreneurs. So I also understood the entrepreneurial lifestyle, but I never thought that was going to be in the cards for myself or I don't know why, but it just never really came to me until that one moment. And I just I just felt that thrill of, of selling things to people. And so that's why I knew I wanted to, to get into business. So I was trying to combine the things I was passionate about, which is, in this case, entertainment. I love all forms of entertainment, music, film, television, video games, you name it. I'm into it. And so I took those passions and technology, which is another big part of my life, was I was a really big tech nerd. 
and um, was trying to come up with something that combined all my passions. And originally, I created a website where artists can upload their music for free, and I would host our own uh, internet radio stations. Uh, so you basically, you upload it, you say what genre it is, and it automatically puts it into rotation. It had profiles and all kinds of stuff. And this sounds exactly like Last.fm. It basically was became what Last.fm it was. So it was funny because this was back in the early 2000s. So Last.fm was called Audio Scrib- Scrabbler back then. And um, Pandora was more mm-hmm. known as the Music Genome Project. So yeah. um, for those reasons, um, you know, we realized that what we were doing was not that much more different than those behemoths because they became super popular by the time it came out. And so my business partner and I were trying to find out what to do next. And then that's why uh, my business partner actually said, well, what if we started a record label? And mind you, just to give some context, the that time was when the RIAA was suing everybody left and right for downloading music illegally. And there were also a lot of reports coming out of labels mistreating their artists. So I was very passionate about how the music industry was at that point in time and frustrated on not innovating enough and not providing value and fairness to both artists and fans. And of course, that that, that was not the case with everybody, but it was definitely in the mainstream at this point in time. So I wanted to create something that was a role model for the music industry. So that's when my business partner said to start a label, I thought that was a really good idea, but I had no idea how a record label actually worked. I just knew that they were a thing. So I said, okay, let's do it. But if we're going to do this, I want to do something different. And I said, what if we gave 80% of our royalties back to the artist? And he looked at me for a second and said, you're insane. And then thought about it a little bit more and said, you know what? I love that idea. Let's do it. And that's how 8020 records got formed. It was you know, just something that we wanted to get into. I bought two books, one on record label marketing and one on music law and read through them. The music law book, of course, I read to the T. The record label marketing book, I went through it and said, okay, these things make sense. These things don't make sense anymore. And these things, I can't do these right now. So I'm just going to think of something else to do instead. And I kind of just started writing up my own rules. Okay. So absolutely self-taught, jumped in with both feet, and here you are 13 years later. Yeah, 13 years. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, how So how, how big is the company now? How many employees do you have? Well, ironically, it's just mostly myself that runs the whole thing. But I have a number of interns that are part of the team too. And actually, we have our largest uh, team than we ever had uh, um, at this point in time. So we've actually been growing. But I've been very lucky that the label supports myself. Um, so I'm very, very fortunate at that fact, because not many people are able to run record labels and make that into a living for themselves. Yeah, that's great. And, and you are in Tempe, Arizona, which is the, uh, hometown for Arizona state university. So I'm sure there's no shortage of people looking for business experience there. Oh, absolutely. In fact, a lot of our interns come from Arizona state university, um, Mesa community college, as well as a, has a fantastic music business program there too. So we get a lot of uh, interns from those uh, locations, but we have, in, I've received interns all over the country, in fact. 
Awesome. Well, that's that's a good way to keep your costs low and also uh, give back to the music community at the same time. Absolutely. I I, I, treat, I try to do as much as I possibly can for our interns. So any opportunities or resources that come our way, uh, I make sure that those are accessible to our interns. I also make myself accessible to them as well. So anytime that you know, a lot of them are musicians themselves, so I help them coach their own um, their own careers as well as their own bands. So I do as much as I humanly can to to give back to them. Okay. Um, how would you say your role has changed at the, at 8020 records over the last 13 years? Oh, I mean, a lot has changed since then. I mean, you know, when I was originally starting, I just, you know, at that point in time, I was just so focused on, you know, a handful of artists and trying to make, break them out where now it's a lot more of a strategic plan of how to build the brand of 8020 records. Um, because that is where the true value is. So while artists can come and go, the brand still grows. And that's always been a challenge, especially when you're dealing with representation, is that, that it's very easy to be tied into one successful artist or to one or two art, artists in general. And if they decide that they're going to move on or they're no longer going to pursue music, you know, you're not necessarily starting from square one because you now have that experience, but you are essentially in many cases starting over again because now you have to build up the brand again with somebody new. So these days, it's more about the strategy of how I can build a, the brand of 8020 Records and using that to support the artist rather than me just re- leaning entirely on the artist's brand itself. It, it sounds a little bit like the distinction between sort of a manager who may only handle one or two artists versus a label where you want to have more of a broad bench. Because you guys also provide some of those management services, correct? Correct. So one of the biggest things also, too, is the fact that we diversified what we do. So now we have a record label arm, but we also have a management arm. We also have a coaching arm as well, and we're building out other additional uh, services as well. So that this way we're providing um, multiple different facets. So no matter who the artist is, we're able to provide services to them, um, as well as starting to provide services to other people as well. Okay. So let's say I'm a local Tempe, Arizona grunge rock band called Epileptic Chihuahua. And oh, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I am just getting started, but I've got a a pretty avid following. Um, And and how do I, you know, sort of a successful local band, how do I approach a label like yours? And then how does that relationship evolve? I like to always mention this out of the 13 years we've been a record label and all the submissions that we received over the years, I've only accepted one. Hmm. Okay. After all this time, only one. And the only reason why I accepted it is because they were already on my radar. They just beat me to the punch of contacting me first. Okay. So you actively go out. I mean, you, you are the A&R rep. You go out there and you find the bands and then you approach them, not the other way around. Yep. I am usually one that's approaching them. Um, because most of the time, the ones that are submitting to us are usually not ready for representation. So, okay. uh, you know, so usually it's finding the ones that I that I know have the right potential and and are things are aligned correctly. Because a lot of it has to do with trust. So, when we're representing an artist, there's an immense amount of trust that has to be yeah, in respect to be between both parties. So that takes time to build. So a lot of times, the artists that we bring on board. Our, our artists that we already have some sort of relationship with. Okay. So when you're, when you're out scouting for new talent, what are you looking for? 
there's a lot of different criteria of what we look for for new, in regards to new talent. So, of course, the music has to be there. So, and what I mean by that is music that I have to at least like myself, because if I don't like the music, you know, no matter what I do, I'm, you know, it's my heart is not going to be entirely into it, and that's not fair to the artist. So, I have to actually like the music. Okay. But then also the the quality has to be there. So the production has to be there for the music. So those are some of the top things. But then it's uh, just as important is the people behind it. So do I get along with these people? Do they have the same uh, types of ideologies as I do as far as, you know, what the music industry is and how to act within it? So that's a that's a big, big part of it as well. Is there is there a feeling of this mutual respect between each other? So those things really have to be in place because if we don't respect each other or are not seeing eye to eye on things, no matter how good they are, it's just going to fail at some point eventually will fail. So that is extremely important part of finding the right match for representation. But then on top of that too, there, especially at this point in time, I mean, in the beginning of a 20 records, anybody who had potential that fit those criteria um, would would be a contender to be on board. But nowadays, they have to also bring something to the table. There has to at least be having some sort of following or audience size of some sort to really make it make sense to come on board. I mean, of course, I will always make exceptions to that rule. But for the most part, like there has to be something there that we feel like, okay, you, you clearly you have something because you have people that are interested in what you're doing. We are now going to just here to help main, you know, to maintain that and to start growing that even further. Okay. So what, what is 80-20? You mentioned a couple of different things earlier about um, sort of the marketing perspective and coaching. What, can, can you be a little more specific about what it is that 80-20 records brings to the table with a new artist? Or Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, so I like to break it down into the three different categories of label management and coaching. So label is the broad perspective that is anything that deals with the actual release of the music. So that comes down to release strategy. So comes down to, okay, when should be releasing it? How it should be released? What are other things that should be surrounding it to, um, for that particular release? So we go over that with the artist. You know, does the artist have a tour coming up? Do they have any kind of shows going on? Do they have any other opportunities that they're that are coming their way? What opportunities that we have that are coming our way that we can incorporate into their particular release? So all those things do come into consideration for a release strategy. Of course, too, we also deal with the distribution. So we go ahead, we, we make sure it's uh, uploaded to Spotify, all those places. Um, frankly, I mean, we, we honestly, we just use DistroKid like anybody else can. So that really these days is not that big of a deal, but we do double check on everything. And that is important. So we we double and triple check that everything is is uh, formatted correctly, make sure all the information is correct. And that does take time to do. So that is something that we do help handle. But then also making sure that it is taken care of and is properly put into all the, the distributors across the board. Um, we have a relationship with Spotify as well. So make, you know, if there's a problem on Spotify, we can make sure that's getting taken care of for the artist. Um, you know, and all the little things too, making sure that they're being submitted into the spot Spotify editorials, any new opportunity, you know, uh, avenues that are coming up too. We're always very diligent about those things to making sure that we're taking advantage of them. So, you know, we're doing about all these different things. I mean, you know, making sure like, for example, it's in Twitch soundtrack and, you know, seeing what we can do more on Twitch. Um, what are the new features that Spotify is coming out with? Um, what features are existing right now, like Spotify canvas and making visualization and, you know, visualizations for these songs, you know, all those different things. We are 
always putting our ear to the ground and keeping an eye on what's going on. Okay. So that would be on the on the label side of things. Um, of or also in addition to that, to marketing. So we do like a press release outreach, and we do also do outreach to our you know our you know existing relationships that we have with press and radio and things like that too. So it's kind of like a a you know an overall support of that particular release and guiding that release um, from you know the point of being completed, um, the masters being done, all the way through the release itself. So that would be on the label side. The management side is uh, actually even more broader, is that um, on the management side of things, it's handling the artist's career as a whole, meaning finding overall opportunities for them, whether that's getting brand endorsement deals, um, whether it's finding uh, op- you know, performance opportunities as well, um, you know, any kind of partnerships along those lines, um, negotiating on their behalf. Um, also, you know, the, you know, we're now the official firefighter for the band. So any fires that come out, <laughs> we're the ones who are putting them out. And believe me, that's a job in itself right there, just making sure that, you know, if their problems arise, that we're the ones that are taking care of them. So um, that is... On the you know management, it really uh, varies a lot, but depending upon the artist, because every artist's needs are very, very different when it gets down to a managerial level. So, you know, it, I've I've done so so much uh, across the board. I've done everything from booking shows for artists to you know getting brand deals to you know every you know all the above. Honestly, I've done it all when it comes to management. It just really depends upon what they need. And then on the coaching side. Uh, the coaching side is designed uh, for any artist. Doesn't matter what genre they are, um, they're in. It doesn't matter if they are just getting started or they're a veteran in the industry. It is there to give them a blueprint of what you know, what steps to take next to get to the goals that they have in mind. And so we help them design what those tasks are that they need to accomplish, and really giving them that guide path because sometimes it's really challenging to know you know, what to do? Should, you know, should I be focusing on TikTok right now? Should I be doing live streaming? Should I, you know, go dive more into licensing? Um, you know, is, are, is social media a waste of my time? You know, is, you know, uh, should I be trying to see what touring is going to look like in 2022? You know, how do I release music these days? Should I be creating an album in comparison to releasing several singles? And then what the strategy is for both of those things. So a lot of those questions you know, you can go online and, and check out YouTube videos and so forth, but they don't necessarily give the answer specifically to you in comparison to, you know, it, you know, a record label where we have experience of 13 years working with over 26 artists, not to mention the coaching that we do for other artists as well. So we're able to provide that kind of specific insight for artists. And that, that ironically is the exact same things we do for artists that we manage and artists that are on the label too. We do the exact same thing just coaching is that specific part of it. Um, you just drew a distinction. So not all of those 26 artists you manage, many of those are just on the label and only some of those you manage. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. Because management is, it's a lot of work. So there's a lot of risk that's involved there. So there's only, you know, select artists that I would choose that I feel like would, you know, would warrant me managing them. So usually on average, you know, I'll, I'll manage one or two at a time, basically, but most of the other artists are are on the label end. Okay. Um, on the coaching end, you talked about a lot of different things that in common questions that artists come to you with. Um, what would you say is the biggest stumbling block that artists have these days? A big part of it is is content. 
the content, content, content. Um, they just don't know what to post online. So I, I help them work through what they could be posting, where their strengths are at and how they can take advantage of that and how to spin that in a way so that, you know, they're providing value online and what platforms they can use to do that with. So okay. that one's a big one right now. Um, overall release strategy is always questions I get asked, like how to release singles and how to release albums, things like that. So those are by far the, the <laughs> biggest things that I find artists need help with is just how to release their recordings and then what to post on, you know, what kind of content to post and where to post them. Okay. Is it fair to categorize? I was listening to your playlist on Spotify. Is it fair to broadly categorize your catalog as sort of indie rock jazz? Um, you, you don't have a lot of electronic type musicians on your label. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I would say that's fair. Most of it is alternative and indie. So like like you mentioned, that's usually what we focus our attention on. Ironically, our very, very first artist was an electronic artist, but he was a friend of ours who, who did it as a hobby. And so we literally joked, we're like, hey, we don't know what we're doing, but we found this contract in a book somewhere and we'll figure out how to get you an iTunes. He goes, okay, sure, and signs a contract. <laughs> <laughs> he, he probably had a big thrill though telling people, yeah, you can talk to my manager, you know? <laughs> yeah, you can, yeah, you can, yeah, I got label rep, you know, what about it? <laughs> so that's the first one we have. But yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest outlier that we currently have right now is we do have a nerdcore hip hop artist. But um, for the most part, we've, you know, we've found our, you know, we found our community within the alternative scene. It's just kind of, I'm a huge alternative fan. Mm-hmm. So uh, like I, you know, you know, in high school, I was digging Jimmy Eat World yeah. and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Linkin Park and things like that. So that's kind of the music that I've gravitated towards. And then they found there was a strong indie alternative scene in Arizona. So that was kind of the community that I was forming relationships with. So I'm, I love all kinds of music. I love electronic music too. It's just that that is where our network and resources were at. So they just kind of kept, kept on growing from there. Okay. What would you say is your biggest challenge running a label? Risk. What sort of risk? So when you're dealing with a lot of risk when you are doing representation because you don't you're not 100% in control because the artist has to do what they need to do on their end and even if they do there's no guarantee that's going to be successful. So there's a lot of risk that's involved when it comes to representation. So you have to take that in strides. And making sure that you diversify yourself as much as humanly possible and understand that things are going to come up. You may have an artist that, you know, you really thought a single is going to do well and it just flopped. Or you may have a single come out that you weren't so sure about and it ended up being amazing. You may have an artist that decides that they want to move on and do other things um, that might be with a different record label or they decided that they are not going to be in music at all. Bands break up all the time. So, you know, you're taking a lot of risk in representing an artist and, and nurturing them and investing, you know, investing yourself into them that there's no guarantee that things are going to pan out. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, and obviously last year has been incredibly hard for the entire music industry. Uh, what advice have you been offering your artists during the COVID pandemic? I, I tell them to work on themselves and however that means. So, uh, that can mean that you're reinventing on what 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 you're doing as an artist. So that may be doubling down on the content that you're releasing. So that may be going into live again, like going into live streaming or doing some other, you know, doing some other things. Uh, if you have an in-house studio to record as much as humanly possible and just release music 
as much as possible. So that's been, for example, last year, we actually released uh, several instrumental tracks from a number of our albums released because we wanted to continuously release music and release content because we also knew too that content was going to be uh, in a somewhat limited supply as far as music is concerned because not everyone's in the studio recording. So anybody who has that opportunity to record, I tell them go and record right now because that is value. Mm -hmm. So, uh, or I tell them, look, if it means you need to take a break, take a break, work on yourself, you know, maybe, you know, do some writing, take, you know, go on, you know, go and relax, take it easy for a while. It doesn't necessarily have to be a running game. In fact, in many ways, it gave the opportunity for a lot of these artists to kind of take a step back for a little while and really work on themselves personally. So the ones that are able to, were able to do that, I think was a little bit calming because otherwise you have this constant pressure of, oh, I need to play shows. I need to do this. I need to release music. I need to go on tour and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden it was just gone. Yeah. So well, if they're dependent on that income, then they, I, I can certainly understand the pressure there. Yes. And so a lot of them, what they did was uh, the ones that were able to translate to live streaming, um, some of them have done it very well in there. In fact, some of them had done better than when they were on tour because they were actually making more money on tips and had no expenses of traveling. So they really translated well. A lot of artists have you know day jobs. So they were just not doing the music end. They were just having their day jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, or the ones that uh, were had that full time. Fortunately, were able to find some sort of financial help as well, um, or they had to pick up a job, and you know they got you know paid that way. Whether it's like you know you know doing a food deliveries like Uber Eats or something along those lines, or whatever the case was. But you know everyone you know survives in some form or fashion. They always find some way to make ends meet. So even if it was their primary source of income, they would just find uh, an alternative source of income if they have to, or they would just rejig themselves as an artist and find other ways that they can earn income by playing music or, you know, making music. For the, for the artists that did well on live streaming, did, did you see any common denominators for what they were doing that was working? Quality was a big part of it and community was the second. So quality of the stream itself. So quality of the audio, quality of the video. Um, but also too, uh, there was a great conversation I had in a virtual networking group last year from a musician, and he mentioned how he was extremely successful. And one thing he mentioned, which really resonated with me, was he said he did a three-hour live stream. And out of those three hours, only about an hour was him actually playing. The other two hours was him just having a conversation with his fans. And that is why he was doing so well. Because the one thing that live streaming provides that a live show cannot is that interaction with your audience, with your fans, that they would never get in a, in a live show setting. At best, if you're at a show after an artist is done performing, you may be able to go up to them at the merch booth, you know, say, hey, great show, blah, 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 and so forth, and maybe have a 30 second to a minute conversation with them. And that's about it. Online, you're having not only are you having a conversation, the artists having conversation with their fans for hours, but then the fans are having conversation amongst each other, and that's how you form your community. Yeah, I, I wonder if the future of the music industry is sort of a hybrid approach where people are, you know, either on tour or they're live streaming, or if they don't have a gig on a weekend, they're live streaming, and and it's really. You know, it's not an either or. It's a, it's a both at the same time for the people that become really successful. 
100% agree. I think I don't think live streaming is going away. I think that live streaming will certainly change because a lot of artists were using live streaming as a replacement for live events, but I don't see live streaming as a replacement for live events. I see live streaming as a supplement to live events. I feel like exactly like you said, if there's a weekend when they're not doing a, a live performance at a venue that they're doing a live stream. And that live stream is going to help sell, drive ticket sales for the live events. So I see it as in an addition. It's something that should be looked at as a different experience that you're providing to your fan base. So I think that's also been the challenge too. The ones that are just doing a live performance on on video and nothing different than what they were doing, let's say, performing at a venue, that I think is going to wane a little bit once venues starting to open back up again. So, because if, you know, I, I personally, I'd rather go to a venue than watching them over a computer any yeah. day, but unless I can't physically get to the venue for some reason, let's say it's like they're, you know, they're doing a show, but it's like clear, clear across the country, for example, I might tune in for that. But otherwise, if it's something that's close by, I'd rather go to the show. But if they're doing like, let's say a very intimate live stream where it's just them playing acoustically, or let's say it's like, uh, you know, almost like a jam session or something like that. And just, and they're having fun and they're engaging with the audience and getting like song requests are coming in and things like that too. And, you know, and I'm chatting with other people who also like the band, like that's a very different type of experience than, than going to a live show. Do you, um, are most of the artists that are doing well on live streaming, are they using Twitch or are they using sessions live or, or some other platform? I've seen them using all kinds of different platforms. Um, I've seen a lot of artists doing extremely well over Twitch uh, for sure. Um, but I've seen some that do extremely well over Facebook as well. Um, so, you know, I, again, again, it really just depends upon your value that you bring to the table and then where your audience is at. You know, Twitch is really good you know, for people, obviously it's a big in the gaming community. So if you are a musician, that's also a gamer or in some form or fashion, obviously that is a really good platform for you. But I've seen artists that are not gamers at all and do extremely well on Twitch too. So it really depends upon what value you're bringing and then how are you engaging with your audience? I think those are really big things to ask yourself and finding the right platform to live stream on. Okay. So if live streaming was to 2020, um, and that was the hot topic in 2020. It seems like right now in the music industry, the the topic everybody's focused on are non fungible tokens. Do you have any Ooh. perspectives on <laughs> NFTs? I do. I'm still trying to learn a lot more about them, but uh, I was intrigued about it. I originally was looking at it, and I when I read about the technology, because I also um, really am interested in blockchain technology in general. Anyway, mm -hmm. so. I was trying to understand on how this works, like the practical elements of working and and seeing it. Okay. Is this just a fad that everyone who's already in cryptocurrency is just getting into right now? And then you're talking about, you know, celebrities. And then of course the, the art community are just jumping into because there's just so much money that can be thrown around that it is a way to experiment with, or is there actually some sort of longevity to this? And I honestly don't have the question, the answer to that question right now. I'm still trying to wait and see what happens. But the more I look into it, there's a lot of hurdles, especially for independent artists to jump through to make something like this work for them. You really have to have the right audience size and you really should be already into cryptocurrency, both for yourself and for your fans to really make this make sense from what I've seen. But I mean, I could be completely wrong, but I, we've been trying 
to see if we can make something work on our end for it, but we haven't really figured that out just yet. <laughs> so um, I'm not a big believer in using utilizing NFTs for transfer of actual ownership. So I'm not a big believer in transfer of actual royalty amounts because of um, utilizing NFTs as a form of transfer um, or the actual transfer of the master recordings um, or even the publishing rights themselves. Uh, there's, I think, a lot of uh, complications that can arise from that and actually could prevent you from very lucrative opportunities elsewhere if you do it in that way. So I think you're actually ending up selling yourself short if you go down that path. I can see NFTs being more of that collectible item that is more about um, bragging rights and value, almost like a, a collectible card game, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, that I can see a lot of value there. But again, you have to have the you have to be an artist that has the right audience size to warrant something like that, and, and, and maybe so, the right type of audience too. Maybe a uh, a yes. younger, geekier audience that's comfortable with cryptocurrencies. You know, if you're playing um, orchestral mu- uh, orchestral music for uh, retirees, you're probably not going to sell much cryptocurrency. No, but if you're playing like crazy orchestral music and you have this crazy crowd of like of, you know, people who are into cryptocurrency that loves that kind of music, then that's yeah. perfect for you. <laughs> so, like, you know, it, 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 but you're right. It really just depends upon the not just about even the kind of music, but you know what is. You know, what is your behavior of your audience? Are they into cryptocurrency? Do they even know what cryptocurrency is, right? So those are the things to really kind of keep in mind. And it may be a segment of your audience. And again, if it's even a segment of your audience, is that going to be large enough to really justify an NFT? Because you're not going to be Elon Musk where you can, you know, where you can basically put an NFT on your tweet and then make a ton of money. You know, or Grimes, where you make a bunch of digital art and sell it. I mean, these are people that have huge audiences, yeah. right? And huge, huge followings. So they can do those kind of things because for them, you know, it, you know, they already have the enough of an audience that they're going to buy it. Um, I know some some uh, digital artists have done extremely well, but that's because the art community is already revolved around that, and they already had notoriety. Like, and that's the other thing too. They already had, again, they already had the audience to do that is just that they had a large enough audience that was into cryptocurrency that they were able to you to leverage that you know nfts to capitalize on that yeah you you know as we're talking about this it strikes me that maybe the solution is you ask your audience you know you use your email list you put out a twitter poll you ask them on your live stream hey have you guys heard of nfts what do you guys think about it if i were to sell an original track with some additional bonus content, you know, how many of you guys would be interested in that, you know, and kind of gauge your audience ahead of time before you bother trying to mint an NFT. Right. Because it comes down to, too, is the fact that, you know, is your audience at the point too, where they know that you're going to blow up as an artist, right? Because it's almost like, you know, like watch, it's like watching basketball when Michael Jordan was a rookie. Yeah. Right. And knowing that, oh, okay, this this kid's gonna go somewhere, and you want to get his his basketball card. <laughs> yep, you're right? right. You're right. That's that's what NFTs is like right now. And that, and actually, ironically, I mean, the NBA is doing that exact thing right now. I mean, they're very brilliant of of creating an entire series of cards that are based upon NFTs, and that was just a brilliant idea. They literally took the physical form and made it digital. Brilliant, brilliant move. So. But that's the thing is like, and that's how it can be utilized for up and coming artists is that if, if an artist has that kind of traction, 
where your audience knows that it's just a matter of time before things really like start to come up and start to explode for that artist. Yeah, they're going to want to get in on that NFT because for them, they feel like they have some sort of um, in, investment, if you will, or some like emo- in this case, an emotional investment into the into the artist, but also technically financial investment too, because then if the band does end up blowing up, well, then that F- NFT value is going to go up, skyrocket up too. Yeah. Yep. Makes makes sense. Um, so it's it's going to be interesting to watch this over the next couple of months. I'm I'm kind of where you are. I'm watching and trying to see if it's a bubble because it, you know, the money has to come from somewhere. Um, and right now it's everybody trading back and forth, but but ultimately you're not creating money out of nothing. So, you know, what's going to happen when people start cashing back out their NFTs? Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. That's right. It, it's a very much a wild west right now, which makes it very exciting. So if you have the capabilities and you have the you know the time and the money to to experiment with this, I say go for it because again, because it's the wild west, you you can you know you can find you know extreme luck there. But at the same token, too, if you don't have those things, I like my personal recommendation would be just you know be cautious and just make sure that you fully understand what you're getting yourself into. Because the more I'm looking into it, they realize that there are a lot of hurdles and um that you have to jump through to make something like this work for you so you definitely you have to do your homework it's definitely not for everybody right now but it is very interesting i'm actually more interested in the in the practical elements of nfts rather than the collectible aspect that's being used now that's actually where i'm really excited about what this can do in the future when you say the practical elements what are you are you talking about the underlying blockchain and how that can be used for business purposes or what are you referring to yeah. So for example, um, I'm very interested in, in what this means for copyrights, because let's say, for example, I, you know, as a label or even as an artist wants a license to you to use my song, right? Well, it could be you know, verbal, it could be in an email, it could be, you know, it could be an, a contract, it could be a lot of different things, but sometimes it's very confusing as far as what, you know, of me transferring that license over to you to utilize that music. Well, can you imagine if there was a way that I can send you an NFT that in that NFT is digital proof that I have a license to you this song to be used in this way? Yeah, that that could be revolutionary. Yeah. And now can you imagine too that let's say let's say I license the song to you to use in a certain way and saying, okay, yeah, you can use a song. Uh, you know, that song for let's uh, like for literally for this podcast, let's say you wanted to play, you know, use it for your intro or whatever the case is. Right. And I give you an NFT that that specifically states in the metadata that this is what it's going to be used for. Now, for example, your, your podcast is up on Spotify or Apple or wherever the case is, all Spotify and Apple has to do is detect that NFT and saying, yep, you have the license, your proper license rights to use this music. You're good. Yeah. That's where I'm getting really excited because then it's digital proof and it's in the in a in a network that everyone else can have access to, so that this way it can give you the the go ahead saying, "Yep, this is this is clear to be used for this particular purpose," and there's no confusion whatsoever. Yeah, that would that would certainly clarify a lot of the uh, complicated legalities around music law. 
Absolutely. And not just even music law. I mean, if you think about photography, um, any, you know, any kind of artistic work that whatsoever, um, or any kind of transfer, even contracts in general, can you imagine if, you know, we were, let's say using DocuSign, for example, to sign an agreement, Mm -hmm. but then part of that is also an NFT transfer. That's now mm. digital proof that that this contract has been signed, and you know, and even it can, hell, it can be even be the metadata of what that contract was. I guess what I'm not entirely clear on is how does it? I mean, currently a lot of businesses use digital signatures. How does it differ than an encrypted digital certificate? Um, you know, it's it's the same thing. You're embedding some metadata. You're kind of locking the file, saying that this is what it's what it claims to be. How, how is that any different than? An encrypted email or a digitally signed email, for example. Two big things. One is the fact that it's a it's an in a decentralized location. Okay. So it's accessible because it's 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 part of the decentralized network. So that's so it's not like on your computer or lo- locally anything like that. It is a part of the network now that this has this is what has been transferred and signed. And two, you can't change it because that's the whole point of the blockchain is that once it's done, it's done. Okay. So. Like that to me, like, and again, I am definitely like, I'll be, I'll be very clear and transparent with this. I am not a lawyer by any means, but to have that kind of digital proof, I think can help a lot of, of, again, a lot of clarifications on things, especially when it comes to agreement signing, because it's not even just a digital signature. It's like literally digital proof of a trans, like there's a digital signature and digital proof that this, this happened, this transfer actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It is fascinating, and there's a lot of a lot of big businesses that are that are buying into the blockchain and uh, investing in this technology. So it's it's going to be an exciting next couple of years, and and um, see where that goes. Uh, I I do if we could pivot just a little bit. I I'm sorry. Let's pivot totally. Let's go back to music directly. Sure. Um, <laughs> I I, I, I want to give you a chance to talk about some of your artists. And uh, I, I'm sure a lot of your artists have interesting stories, but are there any in particular that stick in your mind? You know, how they got started, interesting backgrounds, stories surrounding their music? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, there's tons of tor- stories to tell. Um one of the ones I like to tell is uh, the very first band I actually signed was this band called Click 60, and they were a pop punk band. And uh, I always remember the story of this one. It just always made me laugh is I've asked them, when, I always ask my artists, like where the names come up with. And sometimes it was just, you know, happen circumstance or just a common name that they, you know, like a street name or, you know, whatever the case is. Uh, and um, so, but their name was interesting because they they said well you want the real story or the fake story <laughs> and i was like i the real story and they're like okay well the fake story i guess is they, they like well you know click 60 is like kind of like a you know hold the blank blank 182 like you can blink 182 times in a minute or something like that and they're like it was kind of like a rip off of that like you can click a pen how quickly can you click a pen 60 times or something like okay. that and but the real story was that they had they they were in like middle school or high school and uh and at lunch table, there was this kid that always like they were talking about music and he always like would brag about, oh, yeah, I heard that band before and so forth. And they really thought that he was full of it. So one time they came in and said, oh, yeah, have you heard of this band called Click 60 before? He's like, oh, yeah, I love those guys and blah, blah. And they <laughs> totally caught him. And they kind of just ran with that name. And I thought that was kind of a funny story on how uh, how, how they came up with that name. That, that is funny. Um 
do you know the origin? So I was listening to your Spotify playlist and uh, one of the bands that really jumped out at me uh, that I enjoyed was Bear Ghost. What is the origin Mm. of that name? You know what? I have absolutely no idea. I think you know, knowing them, they probably were like, yeah, we like bears and we like ghosts. So bear ghosts. <laughs> it's, it's SEO friendly, right? Um, it's very SEO f- friendly. I, I know what? I don't think, you know, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes like it just doesn't like, sometimes I'll ask that question and sometimes I'll just never end up asking it because it just sounds so good. I'm like, you know what? You know, yeah, it just kind of makes sense. But yeah, it's very SEO friendly and uh is definitely part of their branding for sure. So I'm pretty sure it came about because they liked bears and they liked ghosts, and <laughs> I and it was probably something along those lines. And they kind of started making stories around that name. Yeah, they they reminded me a lot of uh, they might be giants. Um, yes, uh, necromancing, dancing. I, I kept hearing Constantinople kind of going in the back of my head. So um, mm-hmm. it, it was fun. It was fun. They've they've got a very cool nerdy alternative vibe that. I think they call it adventure rock. I had to go check out their website. So we did, we were trying to find a good name for them. We were going back and forth between like circus rock or indie rock or alternative rock or alternative, alternative indie rock. And let me tell you, like we have just a hard, as much of a hard time finding genres for our artists as artists do, because we're, we asked them like, what would you classify yourselves? You're like, "Eh, I don't know. And so we, you know, we, we try our best to try to, to classify them. And for Bear Ghosts, because there's so many things in them that uh, I actually talked to their manager and, we, and he said, well, what if we call them Adventure Rock? I was like, that's kind of cool. I, I kind of like that. It's, it's where it's, it's, it's enticing enough to go and check out their music, but, you know, but at least gives you at least some idea of what to expect. Yeah. Makes me think it'd be fun to sit down and play Dungeons and Dragons with. Exactly. <laughs> and that's hopefully what we're going for. So it's working. It's working. Um, so speaking of, of, of nerds and geeks, um, you mentioned a genre I'd never heard of before. Nerdcore hip hop. What What is that? Oh, you're in it for a loop then. Um, so nerdcore hip hop is is hip hop music, but the nerdcore element is the lyrics is, is about nerdy subjects, usually video games. Okay. So they usually will rap about, and sometimes they'll even use their beats as as eight um, bit music. Sometimes even from video games. Okay, um, which artist is that? I'm gonna have to go check that out. The specific artist on A20 Records, his name is Megaran. Megaran. Okay. Yeah, and he he's he does extremely well. He actually it gets permission from like Capcom to use like Mega Man's music in his in his songs. So like he. He just has done extremely well for himself. And not all our nerdcore artists are like that. Some of them, they're nerdcore because, like, again, they just talk about, like, their lyrics are about nerdy subjects. Uh, sometimes it's about Star Wars or Marvel or something like that. So it's it's kind of like a gambit of different things that would be based upon nerd culture. Yeah. 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 I, I totally get that as a costume superhero DJ. So um, totally oh, got that. Yeah. So you. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I had a guest on a little while ago uh, approaching Nirvana who did a lot of the early uh, uh, Minecraft um, free music that was used on Minecraft loops on YouTube. Um, nice. So, yeah. Very, very cool artist. Definitely check out approaching Nirvana online. Any other artists you want to uh, particularly highlight or ones that um, ones with uh, intriguing backstories well, I'll tell, we were talking a bunch about, you know, you know, what we do for our artists as well as our team itself. So one of the stories I can mention is that 
there was this one person uh, that actually I was doing a panel about touring mm-hmm. and uh, uh, this person, she came up after I was done and introduced herself um, to all the different panels, panels, including myself. And we were just having a good, nice chat. And she was asking if there was anything else that was going on. And I mentioned, yeah, there was this uh, networking event that is going to be in about a month or so. And you should check it out and gave her the information and uh, didn't really think much of it. And uh, about a month later, sure enough, she shows up and it's at this producer's house and uh, and she still came out. And I was very impressed the fact that she actually came because most of the time you tell people, oh, yeah, there's something coming up and they don't actually show up. <laughs> she she showed up and that really um, that really intrigued me. So I talked to her more, found out that she was a musician, but then she was also going to uh, Arizona State at the time um, pursuing a degree in business and everything that I can she was saying was like, wow, she, she really is serious about, about music and uh, making this into a career and really is interested in the business side of things. And so I asked her like, are you looking for an internship right now? And she said, well, not exactly, but you know, I'm always open to it. And I said, would you like to intern for me? And uh, she said, yes, that was the very first time I've ever straight out just offered an internship right on the spot. I just said, congratulations. You have an internship with us. Wow. No, no checking references or anything. Nope, just right on the spot. I just had a, I just had a good gut feeling about her, and she was fantastic. She was doing mostly solo at the time, mm-hmm. and um, so you know I would go out and see her perform, and you know first time performing, I I saw how ridiculously talented that she was, and uh, so I kept on encouraging her, and and uh, found out that she wanted to start a band, and so uh, we had our ten year anniversary show coming up, and so I said, well. You can play at our show, but you have to put a band together by then. And she goes, Mike, that's in three months. I said, I know you can do it. And so she did. She put together a band and performed at our 10th anniversary show. She opened the night, actually. And um, that that band um, continued on and reformed, came in, uh, with new members, came up with a brand new name. And then about a, about a 10 months later, something like that, eight to 10 months later, uh, she showed me the music that they recorded and like, Hey, why don't you check this out? And I listened to it. And I said, I said, this is amazing. So this is really good. This is her first time into a recording studio. And it impressed me. Like it was good. And I said, would you like to release this on 8020? And she goes, really? I said, yeah. I said, I'd love to release this song. I would be honored to release this song. And that band is turn zero. So, okay. and that's one of the artists on our roster. And that's, that's, that's how turn zero became on board is because she interned with us for about a year or two. And then when she formed her own band and came out with this recording, it was so good that I wanted to support them and I wanted to help them nurture and grow the band. That's that's an awesome story. And that's that's got to feel great for you as well to kind of look at how you know you played a role in in nurturing and developing that artist. Yeah. And you know, she's now one of my, you know, one of my best friends. And, you know, she's actually uh you know, doing um, you know, during this recording, she's doing a, a live stream tonight, and she's she's doing extremely well on Twitch. She ha- she has her own Twitch channel that she's doing very very well with, and uh, she's recording a new EP right now for uh, for the band. So I'm very very proud of her, and it's been amazing to watch how she's been growing as a musician um, through this time, and really taking what she's learning from you know being a part of A20 Records, um, both you know was originally as an intern, now as an actual artist on the label. Yeah. Well, what is, what's in store? What are your plans for, 
the next year for 80-20 records. We're doubling down on our own content, actually. Um, so that's the biggest thing right now. So we're actually, ironically, building out our own Twitch channel. So we're looking to get into Twitch and trying that out for ourselves. We're looking into how to release more music on a frequent basis in general. We're also uh, looking to expand upon our own podcast, the eighty twenty show. Okay. So we're doing things like that. We're going. We're really going all hands on deck on all the different platforms, uh, Clubhouse, like all all the different platforms. Right now, we're we're really looking into for several reasons. One is for not only to expand our own brand, but also is for us to get more experience in these areas that can help support our own artists. So not only to plug them into the channels that we're building out for the company, but on top of that too, that's knowledge and experience that we're gaining that we can give back to them. Yeah, that makes sense. You've got to have some experience with the platform if you're going to advise artists on it. So um, congratulations, by the way, on uh, your 33rd episode on your podcast. Yeah, 33rd episode. Actually, ironically, we're recording this on April Fool's Day, and, and that's when we actually had a episode come out about the April Fool's Day show we did. <laughs> so yeah, that's a 33rd episode. Very cool. Very cool. Um, plug your podcast. What have you? Uh, what sorts of things do you talk about on there? So the 8020 show interviews professionals in the music industry, and we talk about the guest origin story. So we all talk about how they got started into the music industry and their journey that led them up until this point. And that includes everyone from artists to tour managers to entertainment lawyers to uh, journalists to you know podcasters, which I would love to have you come on the podcast at some point too. We'd love to have you on board. That'd be great. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, it's just a wide range. We wanted to show a, a very large net of everyone that's involved in the music industry, everyone who writes about them, who who records them, the artists themselves, the ones that do the touring, the ones that do the management, um, both ones that are known, but ones that are just getting started, because everyone has their story to tell. And one of the greatest joys about doing the podcast is the honor of listening to everyone's stories, uh, where that, that story is and where they're at at this point in time. Terrific. Well, uh, and, and I assume people can find that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the usual places. Yep, absolutely. It's literally just the the eight zero slash two zero show. Okay, perfect, perfect, perfect. Sounds like a sounds like a very complimentary um, program to the record label. Yeah, we do. I mean, we we uh, we try to be respectful on on podcasts. We don't plug too many times. But like once a blue moon, we'll plug. I mean, yeah, you know, it is is a podcast. But um, so once in a while, we will plug. But for the most part, we just genuinely love to tell people's stories. So we just hope that people in you know enjoy the experience with us. Okay, terrific. Well, I'll have links in the show notes page. And uh, where can people find more about eighty twenty records? Sure. So our website is eight zero two zero records dot com. And then um, you can find us on pretty much most of the social platforms. It's usually 8020 records um, or some sort of variation off of that. But usually if you just do 8020 records, you should be able to find us. Okay, perfect. I will have all that in the show notes. And and again, I, I really appreciate your time. This has been a fascinating interview and uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. If you enjoyed the interview today, please share this episode with a friend. And don't forget to leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. I'll have lots of links for you in the show notes page at producerlifepodcast.com, episode 70, including the Spotify playlist featuring all of 8020's roster. 
While you're on Spotify, make sure you also check out my Scarborough Fair remix, which just dropped last week. It features cicadas, synths, and a Latvian opera singer. So until next week, this is the House Ninja reminding you to be somebody's hero today. (laughs) 